0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this year's IPS Northern Lecture Series by Dr. Nolene Hazer, our 10th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Nolene will be delivering her first lecture titled Grand Transitions, Our Multilateral Journey. Following her lecture, Nolene will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Ho Kwon Ping, Executive Chairman of Banyan Tree Holdings Limited and IPS First S.R. Nardin Fellow. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The lecture has been streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at U-Town Auditorium today please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. So without further ado, our director of IPS, Janadas Devon will be giving his opening remarks. Director, please.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the 10th IPS Northern Lecture Series. Our 10th SR Northern Fellow is Dr. Nolene Hazer. She was the former United Nations Under Secretary General and Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific. Prior to these appointments, Nolene headed the United Nations Development Fund for Women or UNIFEM, as it was called, now known as UN Women. She was also the Secretary General's Special Advisor for timor Leste and is currently a member of the United Nations Secretary General's High Level Advisory Board on Mediation. Just a few weeks ago, last month, it was also announced that she is the incoming Special Envoy on Myanmar for the United Nations. Nolene Hazer's three-part lecture series is titled Singapore and Multilateral Governance, Securing Our Future. In a first lecture today titled Grand Transitions, Nolene will speak on Singapore's own multilateral journey since independence. She will examine the lessons we have learned from our history, the concept of solidarity, and the need for multilateralism to adapt. This will be followed by a second lecture on the, at the end of this month, 30th November, titled Great Disruptions Struggle for Our Normative Future. Nolene will highlight the importance of sustainable development and human security, and how Singapore can be a leader for change in the face of disruptions. Finally, she will deliver her third lecture on the 10th of December, titled Securing Our Future, A Renewed Multilateralism, when she will address how we can not only secure our future, but also flourish amidst uncertainty. She will focus on the management of global public goods, and the prospect of a renewed multilateralism, one that is from the ground up and based on trust. I would like to thank Mr. Ho-Kong Ping for agreeing to chair the dialogue that will follow the lecture. It is customary at this point to say, now it gives me great pleasure to introduce so-and-so. It sounds cliched, so I usually avoid saying such things. This is one of those rare occasions when I feel, I can say it gives me great pleasure and honour to introduce Dr. Nolene Hazier, for it describes accurately what I feel about Nolene. For I consider it was a piece of singular good luck in my life that I got to know Nolene some 50 years ago, together with my parents and siblings. She is a singular woman, a person of great accomplishment, but also an exceptionally good person. She did considerable good for the world, in the world, because she was and is such a good person. One of those rare cases of singular comity between the person and the work, the life and the career, the inside and the outside, and the whole, a complete consort. So it does give me great honour to introduce to you Today, Dr. Nolene Hazer, our 10th SR Northern Fellow.
0: Thank you so much, Director. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Nolene Hazer to begin her first lecture titled, Grand Transitions, Our Multilateral Journey. Dr. Hazer, please. It's
2: a great honour to be named the 10th S.R. Naden Fellow for the study of Singapore. And I would really like to thank Director Janandas Devon for inviting me to deliver the series of lecture and for his really very, very kind introduction. Special thanks to Chairman Ho kwang Pin of Banyan Tree Holdings and the first S.R. Naden Fellow for moderating this session. Many thanks to all my friends and colleagues present at this hybrid event and to all participating virtually. The last time I met President S.R. Naden, it was with Kuang at SMU. President Naden gave me a signed copy of his memoir titled An Unexpected Journey. He looked me in the eye and said, please read it. I did. And I must say that I was deeply inspired by how he journeyed from childhood poverty after his father committed suicide when he was only eight years old to become Singapore's longest serving president. The incredible resolve and ingenuity to overcome all odds is the story of so many of our pioneers. It is a part of the DNA of Singapore, unafraid to take control and shape our own destiny. It is also the story of the birth of multilateral governance as colonial powers disintegrated, replaced by aspirations of new nations seeking freedom to define their future. The overall theme of my lecture series is Singapore and multilateral governance, securing our future. Singapore's past, present and future are highly dependent and integrated with multilateral governance. As the only island city-state in the world, going alone and being isolated was never an option in our journey from third world to first. Singapore and Asia have benefited greatly from the rule-based multilateral global order that emerged after the Second World War based on values, norms and institutions. In this three-part lecture series, I will examine how Singapore can continue to contribute to multilateral governance amidst 21st century global challenges? What does it mean for Singapore to engage with and revitalise the multilateral order? How can we build upon the kind of long-term vision and multilateral governance that historically brought giant leaps in our living standards and human development, And critically. How can we secure our common future and shape what we become as a nation? The first lecture is entitled Grand Transitions for our Multilateral Journey. Grand transitions of the past and present continue to impact our future. The aftermath of the Second World War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the 2008 global financial crisis, and now the global COVID 19 pandemic have all revealed fragilities in our world and region that require serious attention. Since our inception as a nation, our mindset, choices, and partnerships have shaped today's Singapore and together with our region, create rising Asia. The lecture will reflect on Singapore's journey in a multilateral world, examine the mindset of solidarity as self-interest, and consider the need for multilateral governance to continually be informed by successes and failures, to grapple with pivotal moments of transition. It will also take into account the frequent disconnect between norms of multilateral governance and the practice of development and corporate governance on the reality of people's lives. Let me start my first lecture by bringing you on a brief journey through time. At the dawn of the second decade of the 21st century. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres began his 2020 New Year Lecture by describing four horsemen in our midst, looming threats that endanger 21st century progress and 21st century possibilities. He described them as global geostrategic tensions, existential climate crisis, deep and growing global mistrust, and the dark side of the digital world. In September 2020, at the opening of the General Assembly to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, he added a fifth horseman the global COVID-19 pandemic. Our world is more interconnected than ever with the convergence of the global and the local. The nature of interconnectedness and integration that defines our time means that the biggest economic and societal forces disrupting and transforming our world can either jeopardize our shared future or secure it, depending on our governance mindset, our choices, and the way we act now, not just locally, but globally. As we imagine the future, there's much to learn by reflecting on our past. So I invite you to cast your mind back Seventy-five years ago, when the world made a pivot, a grand transition that transformed its future, shaped our present, our world had witnessed the unspeakable atrocities and devastation of the Second World War when the dominant economic and military powers wield ideology and violence to exert their self-interest. World War II is said to be the deadliest war in history, with an estimated 80 million death toll, including the millions who perished in the Holocaust. It is perhaps difficult for us to imagine today what that world was like then. Not even 100 years ago, severely wounded, fundamentally fragmented, deeply dehumanized. These lines by the great Russian poet Anna in her poem Requiem about the victims and survivors of Stalin's great perch, capture something of the living nightmare of war. That was a time when only the dead could smile, delivered from their wars. The global war came to an end in Asia several months after it had ended in Europe. And not through a peace accord, but in the aftermath of the atomic bombing of the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Human history had never seen death and devastation on this scale. We were forced to confront what we, the human species, are capable of doing to each other and to our world. We were forced to ask ourselves essential moral and political questions. What is the value of human life? How can we begin a new chapter after such a terrible darkness? How can nations forge a new path of international understanding to salvage what remains of civilization, an attempt to restore our humanity. What are the shared principles that could form the foundation of our collective future? From the ashes and rubble of the Second World War, world leaders of 15 nations came together to reimagine a dramatically different future, finding pathways to rebuild anew. In 1945, they found a path that could offer the world the hope of peace. They came together in San Francisco to forge an inclusive, rule-based multilateral world order for big and small nations coming out of colonialism based on the principles of the UN Charter. Their plan was nothing less than the restructuring of the world order based on mutual trust and cooperation guaranteed by the leadership of the United States of America the major global power that emerged after the war. That was the multilateral moment that transformed our world based on the recognition of the need for justice and respect for international law, promising to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, from the propensity of the human spirit and species for self-destruction. The UN Charter, in its preamble, which begins with we the peoples, ensures fundamental human rights, the equal rights of men and women, of nations large and small, and promises every individual in every country an equal claim to dignity, respect, and happiness and in larger freedom, free from want and free from fear. They believe in the value of collective efforts and multilateral governance founded on the United Nations to achieve global progress and better standards of life for individuals and nations. The United Nations became the global body with universal participation and unquestioned legitimacy to guide the world into new possibilities. This was the euphoric founding moment of the United Nations.
1: If we had had this charter a few years ago, and above all, the will to use it, millions now dead would be alive. And there's no doubt that agreement could ever be reached by these 50 countries differing so much in race and religion, in language and culture.
2: We stand today at the threshold of a great event, both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere.
3: For the first time in the world's history, a permanent international body to deal exclusively with the problems of non-self-governing peoples.
1: We will be even prouder when we can leave the Congo solely and fully in the good hands of its own people. Dag Hammarskjöld is dead. But the United Nations lives.
2: The world that my generation inherited was forged by these leaders with a kind of long term vision and values, solidarity and multilateral cooperation that brought giant leaps in our living standards. The Charter of the United Nations is an exceptional achievement of solidarity. For the last seven decades, the practice of its international norms and the support given by UN institutions have largely delivered independence, peace, prosperity, justice, human rights, hope, and support for billions of people. For many others, however, these aspirations were never realized and are now receding in a dangerous era of uncertainty and anxiety. Despite our best efforts, too many people have remained marginalized and left behind, facing a bleak future if we do not act fast. The marking of the 75th anniversary of the United Nations last year, saw a process of deep reflection globally on how multilateralism can deliver effectively amidst the changing landscape of threats and opportunities. It prompted discussion on how well the UN has fulfilled its mission as guardian of the charter using its legitimacy, convening authority, and normative power. It sought to identify the kind of innovation in multilateral governance that we needed to find solutions to 21st century challenges in a new era of uncertainty, anxiety, and complexity. As we learn from the UN's positive legacies, as well as from its failures, we need to first understand the essential nature of the United Nations. By its very nature, the UN is a hierarchical intergovernmental organization where governments with diverse powers and governance structures make decisions that affect the direction and functioning of the United Nations. At the same time, the UN has a strong history of mobilization and partnership based on the values and moral authority of the UN Charter. It has opened new possibilities, created spaces and built alliances to create a more people-centered multilateralism that brought about social change and accountability, especially with women and civil society. Its multilateral governance operates along four main pathways, peace and security, the idea that we can create a system of collective security built on negotiation and mediation so as to avoid the use of force except in self-defense or as authorized by the UN Security Council. Two, independence. The idea that people in all countries have rights to be politically independent and sovereign based on the choices of our citizens. Three, development. The idea that all countries must pursue economic and social policies that would improve the well-being and living standards of their population. And fourth, human rights, the idea that every individual in every country shares an equal claim, not only to individual, civil, and political rights, but also a core of more collective economic and social rights. The UN Charter and the four pathways consolidated the international consensus and formed the foundation of multilateral governance and showed how it should function globally and locally. So let me illustrate the functioning of these multilateral governance pathways from the rooted reality of human experiences and the perspective of we the peoples, as governance is as much about practice as it is about norms and legal frameworks. Let me touch on peace and security. The age of decolonization and the workings of multilateral governance unfolded, not in a climate of international stability and harmony, but in the ominous shadow of the Cold War and its battles for ideological hegemony. Since today, 16th of November, is a UN International Day for Tolerance, let me recall an example of preventive diplomacy in the handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which almost led to a nuclear confrontation between the two big powers, the United States and the Soviet Union. The confrontation from the Cuban Missile Crisis is often considered the closest the Cold War came to escalating into a full-scale nuclear war, which would have destroyed much of humanity. The use of preventive diplomacy by then UN Secretary General Utan was critical. He was hands on, on the ground, and behind the scenes when the crisis loomed large. As a mediator for global security, he was trusted by all sides and worked diligently to resolve the most dangerous conflict of his time. Wutan was the first non-European to take the helm of the United Nations at the height of decolonization. When newly independent states joined the UN as equal members of the international community, dramatically shifting the balance of power within the UN and ushering the greatest transformation of sovereign power in modern history. From 1945 to the end of Utan's tenure as Secretary General in 1971, the UN's membership grew from a mere 51 to 132. Today we have about 193 countries. Utan himself from a newly independent nation, Burma, understood just how significant this political transformation was. He understood that the acceptance and tolerance of diversity and difference lay at the heart, not only of democracy, but also of peace and security. With wise foresight, Wu realised the importance of protecting diversity in a decolonizing world, freeing itself from the age of empire. For him, diversity was both a reality and a non-negotiable principle for the new international order. He knew that given the very deep historical roots of colonialism, imperialism and inequality, the values of equal rights and diversity cannot be taken for granted. They had to be actively protected and safeguarded for our common future. Not accepting diversity meant rejecting a multilateral world built on peaceful coexistence, and mutual respect for countries big and small, and for all people. The alternative was unthinkable, a direct attack on peace and the possibility of a shared future. He understood that leadership from the UN Secretary General was required, one that was ready to defend the principles and values that lay the foundation for the very possibility of peaceful coexistence to make the world safe for diversity. He often says, as a Buddhist, I was trained to be tolerant of everything except intolerance. Let me talk about sovereignty. The power of the United Nations' unquestioned legitimacy is perhaps best illustrated in the accreditation and recognition of nation states, big and small. In granting recognition and sovereignty, there's also the expectation that national constitutions are aligned with the values of the UN Charter and that nation-states function as responsible global citizens. Singapore is a prime example of this. Being one of the smallest states in the world, Prime Minister Lee Hsien lung in 2015 writes in his forward by the book, uh, for the book, 50 Years of Singapore and the United Nations, edited by Tommy Cole, and I quote him, Singapore became independent on 9th August 1965. One of the first things which the new republic did was to apply to join the United Nations. As our first foreign minister, as Raja Ratnam explained, we did this to obtain from the UN an international endorsement of Singapore's sovereignty and integrity. On 21st September 1965, Singapore was admitted as the UN 117 member state. The symphony of voices from our leaders captures the critical importance of this moment for Singapore as it emerged as a new nation, a city-state integrated into the global community. In the preface of his 2015 book, Professor Tommy Cole, along with his co-editors said, and I quote, the story begins in 1965, when Singapore was expelled from the Federation of Malaysia and became a sovereign an independent country. At the time of its birth, there were critics, both at home and abroad, who had cast doubts on the legitimacy of Singapore's independence. It was therefore an imperative for Singapore to seek admission to the UN. As Raja Ratnam, the Foreign Minister of Singapore, spoke powerfully to the United Nations General Assembly. In 21st September 1965, on the occasion of Singapore's admission to the UN. And I quote My country will join with other nations in their efforts to realize the aims and objectives of the United Nations Charter. For us, the essentials of the Charter are the preservation of peace through collective security, promotion of economic development through mutual aid, and the safeguarding of the inalienable right of every country to establish forms of governments in according to the wishes of its own people. We support these ideals because we realize that the well-being, the security, and integrity of my country can only be assured on the basis of these principles. It is practical self-interest and not vague idealism, which makes it necessary for my country to give loyal support to these essential elements in the UN Charter. World peace, is a necessary condition for the political and economic survival of small countries like Singapore. So it is natural that my country should adhere firmly to the policy of resolving differences between nations through peaceful negotiations by non-violent means. Indeed, there is a happy history and relationship between Singapore and the UN. Singapore has benefited from membership of the UN since its early years of independence, when it was a fragile new nation and our future was uncertain. Singapore used its sovereignty to build the Singapore Core, a nation based on multiracialism and meritocracy and develop economic and social strategies to build new possibilities for its citizens. The UN institutions provided Singapore with many benefits, such as soft loans from the World Bank, technical assistance and expert advice from UNDP, from UNICEF and from UNIDO. One of the UN experts, Albert Winsomers of the Netherlands, was subsequently appointed by the Singapore government as its economic advisor. At the same time, Singapore and Singaporeans have contributed to the work of the UN and to multilateral governance. More will be discussed in my next two lectures, but later in this lecture, I will also be looking the Singapore's initial multilateral journey. Let me now move on to development. When the United Nations was founded 76 years ago in 1945, close to a third of the world's population was under colonial rule. The decades that followed saw a process of decolonization throughout the world, with newly independent countries joining the United Nations as member states. In this context, a key mission of multilateral governance was to help newly independent countries emerge economically and socially from historical subjugation, discrimination, and exploitation of colonialism. Multilateral institutions of the United Nations and a sisters institution, the IMF and the World Bank were created to support sovereign states to generate economic growth, to end poverty and economic exploitation. They were charged with three critical missions, promoting international monetary cooperation, supporting the expansion of industrialization, trade and economic growth, and encouraging policies that would generate shared prosperity and social development. However, having high aspirations is only the start. The harder part is supporting countries to change their direction and practice of development, especially at pivotal moments to improve the human prospect and raise the standards of life for the population at large, not just for the leaders and elites of these new nations. Many newly independent countries were caught Between the exclusive approaches of binary opposition of the superpowers engaged in the Cold War, from the shaping of national identity, citizenship rights, the direction of development, the nature of governance and citizens' engagement, there were limits and consequences determined by the Cold War divide. It casts its long shadow on our societies, still reeling from the legacy of colonial history. The opening of the Iron Curtain that divided Europe, symbolized by the fall of the Berlin Wall on 9 November, 1989, marked the beginning of the end of the Cold War era. As countries of the former communist bloc began to integrate into the global market economy, globalization became a a common pathway for development. The UN could again wield the moral authority of its charter to mobilize the collective power of nations to work together for renewed economic and social progress to shape a fairer globalizing world. It was a turning point of great promise. Yet, our globalized world requires an effective system of checks and balances to ensure that human development is prioritized, not simply political power and economic growth. In the years that followed the end of the Cold War, governments gathered to to address how to shape a more inclusive and sustainable world through an unprecedented series of UN conferences. Starting with the World Summit on Children, the Earth Summit, the World Conference on Human Rights, the International Conference on Population and Development, the World Summit for Social Development, and the Fourth World Conference on Women that I helped to to organize. In addition, the UNDP published the first Human Development Report in 1990 by economist Mabul Haq and Nobel Laureate Amartya Sen. It provided an inspiring, theoretically grounded framework that focused on people and how development is more than just the quantity of growth based on gross national product. The IMF and the World Bank started to go beyond their early structural adjustment approach and began to focus on poverty, growth and economic restructuring as reflected in the World Bank's 1990 World Development Report. The outcomes from the UN conferences and their five yearly reviews were consolidated into the Millennium Development Goals in 2000 and later into the third 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development in 2015. Now, together with the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, the 2030 Agenda, Transforming Our World, provides a very good framework for development, using the synergetic, holistic approach to emphasize the interconnections across sectors and policies in our economy, society, and environment. It is multi-dimensional, transformational, and collaborative in this approach to bring together the five C's or five P's of people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnership with human rights up front. This reflects the values and principles of the UN Charter, and the comprehensive nature of the 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development, leaving no one behind. The message is clear. To prevent warfare, we need welfare, the well being of people and planet globally and locally. In the words of former UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, the Paris Agreement is a health insurance policy for the planet. It is the most significant action in years to uphold our charter's mandate to save succeeding generations. What happens next? What happens next? comes to choices. Political leaders and policy makers in every country and region have a range of choices to practice good governance, to transform society and improve people's lives. Since our inception as a nation, our mindset, choices, foundations and partnerships have helped shape today's Singapore and together with our region created Rising Asia. Let me give you some insights from Rising Asia. What made it work? First, good governance matter. Much of Asia enjoyed at least 60 years of stability, peace and prosperity due to the creation of the global order founded on the rules of multilateralism. During this period, Asia transformed itself. And countries began to generate economic growth through developing their natural resources, human resources, capital investment, and technological capabilities and such while governance systems that would support these priorities. The region reduced by more than half the population living in poverty. It created an expanding, educated and middle class. This is the crux of the Asian miracle. The generation of rapid economic growth and the reduction of poverty in the shortest period of human history. The Asian miracle came about as many founding leaders sought to build the developmental state with strong public institutions to overturn historical vulnerabilities and to be in control of their own destiny. Singapore's founding Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew strove for a new social contract between citizens and the nation, to improve people's living standard by reducing poverty, creating intergenerational mobility, and restructuring social and economic arrangements to achieve development ambitions. This was done through job-led growth, providing public housing, investing in human capital through health and education, building the productive sectors and the reallocation of the workforce from low productivity occupation to high productivity jobs in manufacturing and services, and creating the building blocks for the new knowledge economy. Today, rising Asia, despite very strong headwinds from the 2008 global financial crisis, still serves as a hub for international trade, investment, technology, and innovation. However, while many parts of Asia have made great progress investing in people-centred development and generating prosperity, far too many people are still left behind. Today, Asia accounts for about 30% of the global population living in extreme poverty, less than 1.9 U.S. US$1.9 a day, and 65% of the world's rural youth. The number of undernourished people in the Asia-Pacific region amounts to 350 million, which is about 51% of the global total. In addition, nearly a billion people work in poorly paid jobs with no social protection due to the large shares of informal sector in the region. All these figures are expected to worsen due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Asian miracle is an unfinished agenda. And sustaining Asia's dynamism is made more difficult as we enter a new era of uncertainty and complexity. Let me reflect on what happened to the global economy with globalization. The global economy is changing beyond recognition, moving from the industrial age to the digital age, creating tensions in global interconnectedness, we now have a paradox. While our world currently is more interconnected than ever, it is simultaneously drifting apart. We are integrated through trade, through global financial flows, through our global production system of integrated supply chains and services. We are at the midst of an IT revolution, and three billion people are connected to each other on the internet. Yet we are fragmenting. Fragmenting in terms of power, Decision making and opportunities. Today, we are at our richest. But at the same time, we are witnessing skewed and imbalanced wealth concentration, unparalleled in human history. The world's richest 1% own almost half the world's wealth according to the 2021 Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report, highlighting the global gap between the super rich and everybody else. Growing economic, social, and political inequalities have become more intertwined than ever, posing a grievous threat to our social cohesion and to our own dynamism a high and increasing ratio of wealth to GDP also illustrates growing concerns regarding concentration of political and business power linked to asset ownership in our countries, which many fear acts out of elite self-interest. In fact, IMF research tells us that less inequality is associated with more sustainable growth and poverty reduction. At the same time, excessive inequality is associated with marginalised people, damaged communities and eroded trust. It is no wonder that so many feel anger and frustration with the sense that the rules of the game are unfair, unable to stem out self-interest and corruption by powerful elites. The backlash against globalization accelerated with the 2008 global financial crisis, which affected the real economy worldwide. The crisis increased household indebtedness and unemployment, and broke public trust and confidence, especially in the US and Europe. The financial crisis bail out for corporations for that were too big to, f- to fail, alongside the austerity for the middle class and the poor, discontent over inequality and concern over the climate crisis fuel a dissatisfaction with the status quo. When people start believing that the economy no longer works for them, they start disconnecting, disconnecting from society. Excluded groups, women and youth, mobilized locally and globally for change, and many were inclined to disrupt the established order that did not work for them. Precious worldwide were created for greater transparency, stronger corporate governance and accountability in the financial and banking sectors, including from citizens' movements like Occupy Wall Street. In major Western capital, attention began to focus on the concentration of wealth and power corruption, and the corporate capture of the state, and questioning the value of the global governance system and its institution. As the quality of governance became an issue of increasing concern in both developed and developing countries, human rights have come under pressure. After two successive world wars and their genocides, our founders in in the United Nations Charter reaffirmed faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person and committed all member states to promote universal respect for and governance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language or religion. Today I will limit my discussion of human rights to economic and social rights in the context of Asia's economic development. I will focus on the human rights responsibility of corporate entities given the power they exercise and critical accountability gaps in corporate governance that are associated with being a non-state actor. Asia's phenomenal growth over the past few decades was driven by Factory Asia. As the world's largest workshop Asia searched ahead by providing cheap and abundant labour, formal and informal, to produce very rapidly and at very low costs much of the manufactured consumer goods that the world needed. With the unprecedented economic reform unleashed in China in the 1980s, Production networks and supply chains were born. ASEAN benefited from the regional production networks, producing intermediate products cheaply for the world market. This model of growth created jobs and prosperity, but it was prosperity that was not shared. Inequality grew rapidly in Asia, Jobs were created, but in many sectors, the right to work, sacrifice, rights at work, especially for young women and migrant workers, as factories competed in the race to the bottom on labor standards and human rights. In this race, many factories ignored safety health and labor standards, ignored how they disposed of their toxic waste, ignored human trafficking, ignored what they did to the environment, and how they grabbed and acquired land from the communities. Our civil society raised the alarm. Many leaders were arrested, and human rights defenders disappeared as state people governance declined in some countries. Major wake-up calls came with several human and environmental tragedies too big to ignore and the urgency to move towards a new economic paradigm and responsible capitalism, as well as accountable business practice conduct and governance that recognizes that respect for human rights creates values. In Asia, yet another wake-up call for workers' rights came with the 24th April 2013 Rana Plaza incident in Bangladesh. The building, which housed five garment factories, collapsed leaving at least 1,132 government workers, mainly young women, buried alive. And over 2,500 injured, many missing arms and legs. Workers without rights were ordered back to work to meet deadlines for 27 global brands, despite official knowledge that the eight-storey building was unsafe. Workers under threat had to turn around vast quantities of clothes very rapidly and cheaply for global markets. This tragedy shocked the world and came in the wake of a series of other disasters in the region From factory fires, mining collapse, floods and cyclones, to worker walkouts, and kidnapping of CEOs. To the haze created by the unsustainable cultivation and and deforestation practices of palm oil companies. Clearly, business as usual was no longer an option. It can no longer be siloed from other areas of international agenda setting and decision making. It requires a rethinking of the interdependence between the economy, people, and planet. A shift from the quantity of growth mindset to generate profit at any cost to the quality of growth for the well-being of people and planet. A strong tripartite social contract anchored in human rights between corporations, governments, and workers, modeled on the practice of the ILO, is the fundamental way perhaps of moving forward. Good corporate governance, underpinned by social contract, will have profound consequences for people, shaping their life chances and the well-being of communities. Today, the adoption and implementation of international responsible business practices, which not only generates financial returns, but also contribute to inclusive and sustainable development, while minimizing negative impact on environment and society, has gained increased attention from both governments and enterprises besides civil society. A series of UN conventions and agreements form the basis for international norms on human rights, labour and the environment Most of the Global Corporate Social Responsibility or the CSR instruments either take these as a standing point or align their content with this, and these include the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the ILO Declaration of Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work, the UN Convention Against Corruption and Environmental Conventions, including the Paris Climate Agreement. Existing voluntary CSR instruments like the UN Global Compact and the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights also provide a useful framework for corporate governance and businesses. UN Global Compact, launched in July 2000, consists of 10 principles in the four areas of human rights, labour, the environment and anti-corruption. And many companies have now signed up to implement the, the 10 principles in their core operations and annually report on their progress. The UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights were endorsed by the UN Human Rights Council in June 2011. They comprise three pillars state duty to protect human rights, corporate responsibility to respect human rights, and access to remedy for victims of business-related human rights abuse. And these principles have been integrated into the economic social governance or the ESG principles and business agendas. Moving from standards to implementation, Asia is at a crossroad. It became factory Asia when the region was a very different place, a battleground for both superpowers and local wars, and poverty devastated large parts of the region and people's lives. Today, Asia has become a powerhouse, the center of gravity of the global economic recovery. Many parts of Asia, including ASEAN, have gone beyond sweatshop Asia with an expanding middle class towards a higher, educated, richer, and technologically advanced population. Singapore, in particular, having placed a high premium on quality education, healthcare and jobs, and skills training for the future, moved quickly into the high-skill knowledge economy and established the Workplace Safety and Health Act in in 2006, to replace the Factories Act of 1973. It is time for Asia. It is time for Asia to differentiate good business from bad business and to rethink to change our development script, to take another leap and to invest in ourselves, in our people, cities, rural communities, the safety of our food, the quality of our air, our land, our water and energy systems. We can start to shift from short-term self-interest to long-term collective interest at whatever stage of our development journey. While a section of business is at the core of the problem, business has to be an important part of the solution as we seek to create a sustainable future and shared prosperity for all. I will develop more on the multilateral standards of ESP for responsible business and human rights in my third lecture to deal with the fragility linked to the climate crisis and to move to a net zero carbon future. To stimulate strong regional markets and to increase aggregate demand, we must focus on expanding opportunities for decent productive work and providing fair and equitable ways for all people to earn a living. Our business sector, as a primary source of jobs, plays the central role in this endeavour. In short, the future of Asian business rests in helping to realise an equitable economic system that works for people and the planet. In being a critical player in the global system that is best suited to the economic and social needs of the 21st century. This shift will help to rebuild solidarity and contribute to the stewardship of our common futures and global public goods. As I conclude, let me reflect on solidarity as self-interest. When we all face the same threat, Cooperation and solidarity are the only solutions within societies and between nations. However, solidarity is weakened by broken trust and the mismatch between promises and the realities of people's daily lives. Although international cooperation is key to resolving global problems, solidarity is in short supply as multilateral governance struggles to handle the interlocking disruption of the global pandemic, climate crisis, our cyber world and our conflicts. In our interconnected and turbulent world, the well-being of one is dependent on the well-being of others. How do we embrace and and enact the principle of solidarity as a society and as a nation? Singapore's multilateral journey is something that we need to reflect on. Our island of Singapore is a small nation state. And yet we have become a force to reckon with in the region and in the world. How has Singapore experienced multilateral governance? And how can the country contribute to its strengthening? Singapore, from the very start of nationhood, realised that as a small state, it survives better in a world governed by the rule of law and where there are international norms that respect the sovereignty of nations. Foreign Minister Rajaratnam called it practical self-interest. This is still the core of our multilateral engagement, as repeated by several leaders and diplomats over time. And I quote former Foreign Minister Giorgio, Small countries need the UN and other international institutions to protect our interests. And we therefore have every interest in making sure that these institutions are effective. Let me quote our current ambassador at the United Nations, Ambassador Garfour As a small state, Singapore has an added abiding interest in strengthening the rule-based multilateral framework through the adoption of treaties, norms and guidelines. More importantly, we have a greater interest in ensuring that any treaties or rules adopted are in line with Singapore's interests. However, Singapore has also been strategic in the way it has used its size for coalition building to build strength in numbers. Ambassador Chu Tai Su in 1992 promoted the idea of the Forum of Small States of Force in the United Nations to provide a platform for small states Population of 10 million and below, to share information and strategies. Initiated by Singapore, FOSS allowed small states to work together on issues of mutual interest, lend a greater voice to views and concerns of small states, and raise their international profile. So to quote Minister Shamugam, due to our small size, We are ultimately price takers. However, we have found strength in numbers by building unity in international fora such as the UN. Working together has given us a bigger and louder voice collectively and helped us amplify our own perspectives on global issues. Singapore's strategy in multilateral governance has been largely underpinned by Singapore's strength or sense of vulnerability and price taker status, despite its proactive self-conscious attempts to overcome such constraints. Its initiatives in global governance are driven by means and logic to utilise the most efficient means to deliver the outcomes to protect its national interests, to create a more predictable rule-based world order favourable to a small state's survival. The United Nations has not only protected Singapore because it embodies and entrenches a rule-based international system but also because it provides a platform for small countries to build a network of friends and to enlarge their diplomatic and geopolitical space. It provides small countries an opportunity to play a constructive role globally and thereby increase their profile within the community of nations. Singapore as a small country clearly understands, but often struggles to fully embrace solidarity as self-interest. While that principle endures in our changing world, the rule-based multilateral system that gave rise to it has been weakened, unable to effectively respond to the five horsemen described by the UN Secretary General. The acceptance of collective thought and action The very essence of multilateral governance has been largely ignored as powerful countries are also acting out of self-interest. After a year of listening and conducting consultations globally, the UN Secretary-General put forth our common agenda as we reach a dangerous crossroad in our multilateral journey. According to the Secretary-General, We have a choice, take the road to break down or the road to to break through. This depends on the deepening of solidarity to deal with our global commons, our oceans and our air, and our global public goods, global health, the global and digital economy, peace and security, and our healthy planet. Our common agenda put forth concrete mechanisms and actions for a breakthrough. For their successful implementation, we need the same bursts of energy and and solidarity at the birth of the United Nations to revitalise multilateral governance, to effectively mobilise shared solutions to regional and global challenges of the 21st century. Multilateral governance works best with responsible corporate governance and when effective democratic governance is practiced by member states of the United Nations. How can Singapore today contribute meaningfully to a strengthened system of multilateral governance? Examples of how Singapore has done this and where we now need to do more for our own interests will be examined in my next lecture. Singapore's multilateral journey is not simply a matter of national interest. It is a recognition and affirmation of our common humanity in the community of nations. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Noli Hazel. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Mr. Ho Kong Ping to start the Q&A session.
3: Well, um, Nolene, I must say, I have to add my remarks to that of uh, IPS Director Janadas. He's known you for five years longer than me. Uh I've only known you for 45 versus 50 years by Janadas. But I think we both share the same views that it's, I mean, anyone who's known you has known your unrelenting optimism, your fervent idealism, and I guess your your practical determination to follow on those ideals as evidenced by your recent appointment, which, by a time when most people would be enjoying retirement, <laughs> going by the beach and so on, you've taken on a, a truly Herculean task and I think we're really proud of you um, as our best representative to the United Nations. However, this is gonna be a little bit more provocative, uh-huh. okay, I, I suggest that we've got 30 minutes and what we could do I have some, quest- um, some questions from the audience and so on and I think we could possibly divide this into two broad areas. Mm -hmm. One is about the whole question of multilateral governance itself. And then the second one will be a little bit more in Singapore, although you said you'll talk more about it later, Mm -hmm. but you've set the stage and everybody wants to know some of your views about Singapore's possible contribution to greater multilateral governance. Now the provocative part uh, I, I want to put to you, and there's some questions from the audience that's related to that, is that I think Everyone is completely clear, and there's an undivided global view that the United Nations, since World War II, has done a truly massive job in uplifting the livelihood of people all around the world, in economic, social, human development, health development, and so on, and in decolonization. However, it has probably been a lot less successful in terms of resolving geopolitical conflicts. And in fact, it seemed to me a bit ironic that you alluded to 1962 as a case study of how multilateral governance from the United Nations helped to defuse a geopolitical problem. Ironic, meaning 1962 was a long time ago. Where has the UN been since then? Um, and people have become quite cynical, obviously, even more so today. At a time of China, US tensions, Russia, EU, People are even questioning the entire relevance of the United Nations. Um, after Iraq, uh, which was a debacle and clearly seen as probably the most cynical use, use and manipulation of the United Nations for national purposes. And then Afghanistan, and, and so on and so forth. The, the, the whole litany goes on. One interesting question related to that from Danny Kwa, our mutual friend from uh, the dean of LKY School, is whether you think there's a specific historic event that has made the world, that marks the world's starting to retreat from uh, post-World War II multilateralism.
2: Hmm. Very <laughs> provocative, but thank you, <laughs> Kwong-Fen. But first of all, my deepest thanks for moderating this, this session. Well, I trust Danny to ask a difficult question, but, uh, I uh, just want to say that um, if I think of it, because there was that time of great promise after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when all the UN uh, member states came together through all the series of UN conferences and um, really tried to shape what globalization could mean. Frankly, I thought there were several points where the weakening began. The first, actually, was what happened with September 11. Mm. I think the attack on the World Trade Center and then the US itself, um, shook the country very deeply. And the people at that. I was there at that time. And I saw the shock on people's face. It was very hard to get over. And I think many things broke, including, I would dare say, uh, even the human rights ways of dealing with the other.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Then, there was, unfortunately, the what happened, as you mentioned, at the Security Council for the Iraq war, which Secretary-General Kofi Annan said that it was illegal, and now we know that there was not enough evidence. This, and then also, that was all, all these happened to be in the peace and security sector, but also in the economic sector, the global financial crisis of 2008 that affected the real economy and real people's lives, and what happened and how it was resolved and so on. It broke a lot of trust. Hmm. And I think that what came up was a broken trust and suspicion of the other. I mean, what we tried to do, I mean, I purposely brought uh, Utan's in, the respect for diversity, and that was actually also weakened. Hmm. So a lot of the principles that formed the foundation of global governance, weaken, And on top of that, although we did, I think the UN have to be credited that we actually have prevented a Third World War from happening. But there are many conflicts that we do not know how to end. And that set of conflicts actually created Displacement of people on a scale that we have never seen since World War II. Today, we have about 80 million people who are displaced. Just think of it. And the fact that they are migrating, taking dangerous journeys overseas, crossing channels, doing all kinds of difficult situations, sacrificing their life savings to traffickers and smugglers, just to get a chance of a better life. Unfortunately, they're not welcome. Because there's fear. Fear and insecurity in the developed countries, as well as in the developing countries. That
3: adds to the cynical view of people who say the UN does a great job in global damage control. Superpowers fight, superpowers close off their, or their, uh, oh, not superpowers, but the developed countries close off their doors to economic refugees or to uh, war refugees. The UN does a great job with damage control. But let's not go there anymore. I just needed, I mm-hmm. think, those people who, there are many people like myself who greatly admire the UN on one aspect, and are perhaps a bit more cynical on the political side.
2: Yeah, but can I say, Kwong uh, uh, Pen, if I may, that, <laughs> just to comment, what I'm saying is that you, who forms the UN, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the UN, actually, there are three UNs. And so we have to hold another UN responsible. So firstly, it's the UN Secretariat, the, uh, the Secretary General, and the people like us, right? Like myself, and so on. But there is also the UN of the member states. And if the member states don't use their power wisely in well, the governance, right? That, that
3: leads to a bigger question <laughs> uh, yeah. of, does the UN structure need reform?
2: That is exactly, exactly. What is why we need to talk about but, the new multilateralism. Could, okay. uh, so, so that, and then the third uh, UN that we hardly talk about, are we the peoples, the, the, the citizens, the private sector, the think tanks, and whoever can Absolutely contribute, right. because at the end of it, that's my third don't, lecture.
3: Don't, don't uh, paint a broad brush hmm. against what is clearly, I think, faltering and perhaps hmm. even yes, failing, indeed. is the political structure of the UN as a, as a member state's decision-making body that came out of World War II. Hmm. may not be applicable today, Security Council and all that, but don't tar with the broad brush, the, yeah. all the works, of the Secretariat exactly. and the other organizations, yes. and very importantly, the people mm-hmm. who are benefiting from it.
2: Exactly. Okay. So that's
3: the well point. Point taken. Right. So let's move to other areas <laughs> closer to home. Okay? Right. Some other very good questions that I think are, are very interesting. One no, is on ASEAN, mm-hmm. and that is a, a two-pronged question on ASEAN. Uh, Num one is ASEAN itself as a regional organization, could it play a greater role within global uh, Uh, governance, meaning Mm. within the UN itself. Mm. Could ASEAN play a more concerted role to have some ASEAN initiatives, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Number one question. And second one is, when we talk about multilateral uh, uh, governance, you are, of course, speaking mainly of the the UN, but there's also ASEAN. What about ASEAN's own dysfunctionalities, ASEAN's own success? What are your comments on both?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I must say that, uh, actually, um someone from Singapore, Tommy Cole, uh, um, Prof Cole. He, he and his team, uh, of course, in partnership with the rest of the ASEAN member states, created the ASEAN Charter. Hmm? And the ASEAN Charter actually incorporated uh, a lot of what was in the UN Charter. Hmm? And also, uh, if you look at it, I mean, the UN actually In the charter, we actually have, there's a whole article on regional organizations and the importance of regional organizations. So the UN actually works very closely with ASEAN. In fact, when I was uh, the Under Secretary General based uh, in Bangkok at that time with the Regional Commission, um, we actually developed a comprehensive UN ASEAN framework and partnership. And this was actually, Absolutely critical because it actually um, assisted with the way we dealt with shared vulnerabilities. Uh, the, at that time, the biggest one were the uh, natural disasters. So that's how the AHA Center came in, and the UN provided a lot of uh, expertise and support in many of the of the of the disasters. Uh, the UN uh, also. Uh, Created, you know, the tried to link in the ASEAN 2025 development agenda, where it tries to build the economies, a more integrated economic economy, uh, with the 2030 sustainable development agenda, so that the building up of the uh, economic community is not just from the economic side, but actually takes into account the three pillars of sustainable inclusive Mm -hmm. development. And uh, a lot of the work that the the UN actually does with ASEAN also goes uh, in when the ASEAN would have their committees. Uh, for example, the committee on women and children, uh, the work on, on in the implementation of CEDAW, ending violence against women, uh, and so on, is incorporated. What could
3: ASEAN do more? Do you have okay. Any suggestions?
2: Okay, uh, what can ASEAN mm. do more? I think. <laughs> The thing is, it's not easy, as we all know. ASEAN itself consists of very different member states, at different stages of development, different interests, and so on. So, of course, when it comes to certain decision-making, it tends to be slow, and sometimes it's not seen as fast enough. there is, of course, um, a lot of frustration. Why can't you all get your act together and just go on and do it? But ASEAN is very careful in treading, you know, how do we do it? How do we, how do we achieve uh, some breakthroughs? So it's like two step forwards, three step backwards, three step forwards, two step backwards. Is that kind of a dance? So, but increasingly, I think the, the UN is going to depend a lot more on regional organisations. I mean, uh, okay. we can think about ASEAN, but we can also think of the African Union, for example. Many of the conflicts and the wars, I mean, they are unfortunately so much intertwined with regional dynamics. Okay. And so therefore, they need regional institutions.
3: Okay, so, uh, you're talking like a diplomat.
2: Okay. No, 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 I'm okay. not.
3: Now, wearing your international diplomat role, and now non-retired, brought back into action, and knowing the, the, you know, the protocols and the carefulness with which you have to speak. Imagine a situation that all the ASEAN heads of government came to you now and say, you know, Nolene, we all know you, not for 45 years necessarily, but we all know you, we respect you. What is the one change you would like to see within the ASEAN decision-making structure, knowing very well as we all know, the constraints, the realistic constraints Mm. of ASEAN. Mm. Knowing those constraints, Mm. what would you suggest?
2: Okay. Here, I actually would take the cue and the example of our mutual friend, who unfortunately has passed away, Dr. Surin Mm Faisawan. I really like the way he managed ASEAN as the ASEAN Secretary-General. He actually did not wait for the consensus, consensus decision making that very often would have to go down to the lowest common denominator. He actually talked about the coalition of the willing. Mm. Okay, those who don't want get out of the way. We who will move forward, we will take responsibility and we will move forward. And he did that. So I you mean, could
3: have a sort of absentee vote. Not everybody has to vote ab- in favour. Not favor. everybody
2: have to okay. vote. As long as you don't use your veto. There's no such thing as veto, luckily, in, okay, in, right, in, right. in ASEAN.
3: Okay, good. So is that speaking as the next ASEAN Secretary General?
2: No, no, not me.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> let's, let's move to another, um, I think, very, very topical subject. Um, COVID, COVID-19. Uh, there are two questions here. I, I'll put into, into one. And the, the one question is, what do you think has been the role positive or negative of the multilateral governance including the dwho in dealing with the whole um outbreak and basically internationalizing successfully the whole control of it or the lack of success in doing that in dealing with vaccine nationalism and and all these issues what are some of the lessons learned question one and question two is COVID-19, as we know, has been even more devastating to the poorer developing countries. What can the UN do to help mitigate this very disastrous impact on the poorest countries of the world?
2: You know, I think one of the best thing the UN did was to have COVAX, and this was the facility that um, basically coordinated the distribution, the manufacturing and the distribution of the vaccine. Because there is going to be no economic or social recovery without vaccination. But of course, unfortunately, the richer countries would buy up most of the vaccine and the poorer countries wouldn't have access either to them manufacturing of the vaccine or to their distribution, and were still the countries in conflict. But through the COVAX facility, and here Singapore played actually a very good role. Singapore uh, became a member of COVAX very early on, and uh, in fact, contributed to the facility as well. And um, it also uh, contributed to the distribution of the vaccine to... Uh, to the less developed countries. So there is that cooperation uh, that is going uh, forward. But what was uh, disappointing was the fact that even before all this happened, Secretary General Antonio Guterres went to the Security Council and wanted to get a Security Council resolution to bring the superpowers in so that there would be a coordinated and a powerful response in the way we did it with Ebola, where the US actually played, played a very strong role, with HIV AIDS, in order to deal with global health as a public good. That didn't quite happen because at that time, the administration in the US, did not go along with it, and there were geopolitical tensions with China and so on. So that didn't quite happen, and the Secretary General just kept on at it, and eventually what he called for was actually um, a global ceasefire to get the vaccines across to the conflict-affected countries. I mean, after months of negotiation, I mean, eventually, something eventually did happen, but that was very slow. So there were all these tensions, obviously, but that didn't stop the work of the agencies. So WHO, the um, Global Alliance for Vaccine uh, and uh, the immunization went forward, uh, CEPI went forward, and we formed an alliance, and we also involved the member states, so people went forward. So, it is not as coordinated as we could be, but it is happening. And increasingly, the Secretary-General actually uh, did not just depend on the UN uh, space, if you like, but called upon the G20 to to take into account not just the immunisation programme, but the manufacturing and the distribution, and of course, issues of intellectual property rights and so on, to allow the poorer countries to manufacture where they have their capacity to manufacture their own vaccine and to distribute it. And this is so critical, because at the end of the day, it is not enough for us to just distribute a few vaccines everywhere, and we have to realise that there is not going to be our economic recovery anywhere if our weakest links are not attended to. Okay.
3: Um, I, I'll have, we're beginning to be running out of time, so I want to move into Singapore. But I have, and also there are a lot of questions coming in that I think you and I would agree. It, it's no point to go there, meaning questions dealing with China, US tensions yeah, yeah. and so on. That's a, a different ball game mm-hmm. on, on its own. Yeah. But I think there's a very good conceptual question that I'm sure we'd like to hear from you you know, to the extent that, as we all know, the UN is not an enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. It does, it cannot, it has no coercive power, it has no military, cannot enforce, no police as such, besides the uh, safekeeping forces and so on. But it has a power, it is a very powerful validator of social norms. Mm-hmm. What is acceptable, what mm-hmm. is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that many of the parties that do not want these global social norms are in fact governments mm-hmm. or rich corporations. Mm -hmm. The question here is, do you think civil society in every country would play a very important role together with the UN in order to help create these norms and values that end up with declaration of human rights and diversity Mm -hmm. and protection of, you know, so many other vulnerable parties in society. Mm -hmm. What is the role of civil society in working with multilateral agencies like the UN? Oh,
2: huge. uh, because, you know, I, I think in my speech, I did mention that besides, uh, although the UN is state-centric, right, it has a moral authority mm. to give voice to the voiceless and to defend the defendless, right? And um, the, what it has done was the mobilisation of civil society. Huh? If you look at the UN conferences, the ones that we, we mentioned, civil society played a huge role and I, myself, was involved with the Fourth World Conference on Women. And I must say, there were 30,000, and this is before Mm. the Mm. age of social media, Mm. there were 30,000 women's groups organising from the ground Mm -hmm. up because they wanted the norms and standards to come from reality, not something that was like thought of, but also uh, where else can uh, where else do we need to attend? And 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 it's not just about um, norms and legal frameworks. That is one thing, but it is also about practice mm-hmm. and accountability, because these norms can look very nice on paper. Everybody signs mm-hmm. up to it. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to the practice, and the operations,
3: that must give you much more satisfaction working with these groups than sitting in the General Assembly, listening to listening to politicians speak to empty halls. Well,
2: right? it, <laughs> oh, yes, the not answer to is yes. Man, but I will. <laughs> okay. I will. Okay. I mean, the main reason is because it's actually. If civil society and women are just absolutely wonderful as leaders, knowing how to use space and how to create alliances and what Mm -hmm. to do when and so on. And it's actually, I was involved in this, just the, the fact that you can actually find coalitions or alliances of member states that will support what you're doing. So the work on ending violence against women, was brought all the way up to General Assembly. So we don't, uh, we don't divide, OK, because we want our, our states to be accountable. There's no point if it's, if it's only civil society. The state has got to be accountable. So we worked with our member states, got the uh, declaration uh, passed. But for me, the both, or at least the, one of my greatest highlights when I was head of the uh, Women's Development Fund, was actually working with Security Council. I mean, it's, it's okay. always seen as the most difficult... So you have
3: to lobby at the corridors of power, and then you have to squat with villagers and discuss their problems. You have that to gives go that real down
2: of, to the mm, floor. Yeah. And your power is to be able to say to Member States, I actually know what is happening on the ground, and I can also tell you that those people on the grounds, they know some of the solutions okay. that you are looking for. And let me bring both of you and everyone together, because at the end of the day, if, for example, with the peace and security, the women, Peace and Security agenda, if you are really interested in sustaining peace, you, are, you have a missing mm. piece mm. where these people have. And this is okay. to build the foundation of a more inclusive and sustainable society. Well said.
3: Now, with a few minutes left, Singapore. Okay, I'm going to be very provocative here, okay? Mm. Um, and and the, I guess the point is I think we all know, you've built up the case, and we all of us who are older people all know the importance of the UN for Singapore as a small state. Uh, as Rajaratnam has said, and other ministers you quoted have said, we need the United Nations. That is not a point to have to prove at all. Neither does one have to prove that we, as a small state, try to work within the UN, as you have said, to make the institutions as effective as possible. The provocative question is this. Singapore is said to punch above its weight, and we do. But we've always been very polite in not wanting to offend anybody. Uh, We all saw the Barbadian prime minister scolding everybody. (laughs) You cannot imagine a Singapore minister doing that, because we don't want to assert ourselves more. And that has been the philosophy from the very beginning. We are a very small country uh, within ASEAN and within the world. Now, what other ways can Singapore do more uh, in terms of recognizing solidarity and self-interest beyond respecting the UN and quietly behind the scenes being, trying to buttress the UN? Should Singapore play a more assertive role, even to the point of being slightly uh, m- well, more assertive? Mm-hmm. Should Singapore take on a more assertive role, a leadership role in the forum for small states, I- small developing islands, et cetera? We've always gone along supporting people, but we have not even been like the Maldives talking about climate change or other countries. Is it time for Singapore to become a little bit more assertive, even at the risk being called a loudmouth.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <for
2: you. laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Kelvin. <Kwon-win. laughs> well, <laughs> I actually have two points to mm. make. So, one, uh, besides a forum of small states, uh, Singapore also uh, developed, and this was under uh, foreign, uh, former foreign minister George Yeo. They, what he called the the three Gs, right? The global uh, governance group. And this was actually the, uh, to influence uh, the decision making in the G20, and uh, they have done that. Uh, but again, it is on from self-interest. Uh, make sure that the interests of the small states are uh, attended to. So that tend to be our default mode of operation. Always our self-interest first. But I think in the future, there is an opportunity for Singapore to be in the lead. Mm-hmm. And I think Singapore will dare to do it. But this is my third lecture, so let me just give you a hint about it. Okay. Okay, Singapore, because we have the capacity now, we want to be a kind of a digital hub Mm -hmm. hmm, for the region and even can be for the world. Now, one of the biggest things that we have to deal with that has not spoken a lot yet, I think, is the issue if we want to be a... Uh, digital hub, we have to ensure cyber security in the cyber world. Can we stout, shout and scream and try to get the norms and standards that make sense? Because it actually hurts people. I mean, increasingly, what we see in the real world can affect the cyber world, and increasingly, even the wars will be fought mm. Mm. in the cyberspace. So I think that Singapore, using its own voice, but mobilising the voices of the small island states and the 3G. So it's a little bit more, not just self-interest,
3: but an, in, in the pursuit of enlightened self-interest, we can push a bit harder.
2: And do that in the yeah. context of solidarity. Well, one
3: area too, I think, I was just attending a conference today by GIC, and mm-hmm. you know, GIC in Tamasek, I mean, mm-hmm. we are a rich country, we're mm-hmm. not a developing country. Uh, the the resources and investment that we have Absolutely. put, we can put to play with as a sovereign wealth fund, mm-hmm. and as it, Temasek, mm-hmm. if we combine all that and lead the way for even developed countries Absolutely. in terms of climate finance, climate investment, and so mm-hmm. on, we could probably move the needle Absolutely. considerably. Because right now that needle mm-hmm. is moved mm-hmm. um, by private equity funds, which, Absolutely. as we all know, and mm-hmm. as they're structured, they after. I mean, they mm-hmm. say a lot of things, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is greenwashing. Mm-hmm. So Singapore has a lot of. So we'll wait for that.
2: Yes, no, but... but okay, all then, of you out there,
3: wait for the final exactly, conference.
2: Exactly, but Kwong but, Peng, but, but, just, just to end this, we can be a, a really important financial centre, but we need to have the right standards. Huh? Mm-hmm. Because the point is that we already know that sometimes, you know, it is very good for uh, publicity, but we need to really make it real. So on that note of reality...
3: Yes, well, on that note of... Uh, advertising your next lecture. We have to wrap up today. Mm-hmm. I, I think I can say, on behalf of everyone who's watched uh, here or, or you know or live streaming, that it's been an absolute delight uh, to to interact with you on your on your first lecture. I think all of us who know you, Nolene, that it's not only your intellectual rigor, your intellectual heft that's that's so admirable. It's particularly the fact that, as you've said to me many times. What's the point of being an armchair critic? What's the point of being an armchair commentator? If you have the power, you have the resources, you have the will and the energy and the idealism, the realistic idealism, as you said, go and do it. Mm -hmm. And you are going to do it soon in a not easy job. Mm -hmm. All of us wish you well. And I think all of us agree there could not be any better person at all. thank thank you you very much. Uh,
2: Thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank thank you. you, everyone.
0: Thank you, Mr. Ho and Dr. Hazel. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed to submit your feedback. Nolin's second lecture titled Grip Destructions, Struggles for a Normative Future will take place two weeks from now on 30th November. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you again. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening.